Hello, my name is Declan Deneen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Ian Bogost. Uh, Ian is a, an award-winning game designer, he's made games for presidential campaigns he, he created cow clicker for facebook one of the very early kind of satirical clicker games he's also an incredible writer and um, he was contributing editor for the atlantic um, and he's written a bunch of really amazing books like persuasive games and how to play video games how to talk about video games uh, and and, I, and he's also actually he's the, the professor of uh, interactive technology at georgia tech uh, and he's he's brilliant this is such a good chat like this is such a good chat that I kind of I missed all of the quick fire questions because I was just so engaged in the in the discussion like he Ian is someone who's clearly thought about and written about and video games so much and he's able to articulate such interesting ideas I, I found it to be just brilliant I genuinely felt smarter after chatting with Ian it's a it's a brilliant chat I am uh, I'm sure that you will enjoy it I'm sure you'll enjoy it so much that you'll rush to iTunes or whatever platform you use and leave a rating and a review saying how much you enjoy the the show which obviously you know helps other people to discover the show similarly sharing the show on social media in whatever fashion you like is uh, is really useful and helps build uh, the audience to the show um, if you really enjoy it there's a patreon which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints any and all donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be um, if you'd like to get in touch with the show for whatever reason, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Okay, I'm going to keep the intro brief because I like genuinely really thoroughly enjoyed this episode and I'm certain that you will too. Uh, so thanks as always for uh, downloading the show. Please do subscribe, tell your friends, all that sort of stuff. I'll be back next week, as always, with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Uh, okay, well, I'll start with a, a formal introduction then for the sake of uh, ceremony. So, Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'll admit that this is always, um, I'm always anxious about introducing myself because I don't know what I do anymore, but I'll give it a go. Um, so I, uh, I, I'm a professor at, at Georgia Tech. I teach in computing and in liberal arts. Uh, I'm also a contributing editor uh, at The Atlantic. Uh, I'm also uh, a writer. I've written uh, about 10 books now on games and technology and other things. Uh, and I'm a game designer too. I have a, uh, an independent studio called uh, Persuasive Games. It's been around for about 15 years and makes games about politics and social issues and education and so forth. And then I also do my own uh, independent work, uh, some of which has won uh, some awards. So I'm kind of kind of all over the place. Uh, those are some of my roles and some of my titles. Yeah, I mean, I'm very excited to talk because, like, largely through your 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 written work, um, because you, you you often write about very interesting things in a very interesting way um that kind of that uh, sometimes rubs people up the wrong way but I, I i tend to think that it's it comes from a, a place of real kind of intellectual uh, rigor uh, at least if that's not too uh, putting too fine a point on it no i mean i'll, I'll certainly take that uh, explanation for sure <laughs> uh you know the uh it's funny because I, I i think i know some of the stuff you're referring to and, and we can we can dig into it a, a little bit but one of the interesting things in my writing life uh, over the past, let's say, you know, five years, uh, as I've, so I used to write, um, not exclusively, but almost exclusively about uh, about games, uh, both in a kind of scholarly way and, and for the, the sort of trade or enthusiast uh, media um, and in books and other writings for a more, a more general audience. And uh, it wasn't always everything that I was doing, but I've, I've moved much more broadly into kind of technology and culture in particular over the past five years. And yeah. so now when I write about games, uh, you know, it, I tend to take these, these sort of big, 
um, maybe somewhat controversial uh, uh, goes at them. And part of that uh, that I think the game community doesn't necessarily see is that the the average person still isn't that interested in, doesn't really care about about games. And so making that appealing and interesting and also speaking to them in a way that uh, that draws them in to the material um, requires an approach that is different from what folks who are very steeped in this, who live it every day, Absolutely. as players, as developers are used to. And I like one of the things that I find really interesting about about doing this show and like speaking to people is how, and this I, I hope this doesn't come across as kind of a, a, a slight dig in some way, but the not a dig, but you know I'm referencing ages because it seems to be you get kind of very obvious kind of generational strata of people that kind of inform the the thinking and the understanding of games, you know. And I've spoken to like so for instance I spoke to Rod Humble who seems very mm-hmm. much like you know you're part of his generation you're part of that kind of strata of video game thinkers and designers and writers that kind of influence the next generation and so on and so forth um is that is that fair to say yeah i mean i think that's fair you know and 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 rod and i know each other well and we've you know influenced one another's work in in certain ways uh, i think and you know i mean if i can dig into that idea a little bit I, i think one of the things that i've noticed is that you go back to uh, certainly folks who were working professionally, um, you know, as, as, as designers, developers, critics, um, although there were fewer critics back then, you know, in the 1970s, in the 1980s, the early days of, of, of the commercialization yeah. of computer games. Um, and then those of us who were young people in, uh, in that period and who, who were encountering them, uh, for the first time uh, as, as kids or as, or as, as young adults, um, you know, no one, no one planned to to get into games. It wasn't a thing that you aspired to do as a career or that you thought was a hobby yeah. that would persist uh, throughout your life. It was just a thing that you fell into. Uh, you know, Rod is like this. I, you know, I think um, uh, Will Wright is, is, has talked about this really extensively, um, you know, how he sort of just kind of fell into this from other, from other practices. Um, or... Um, um, you know, um, someone like, um, I spoke to actually a good example is I spoke to Richard Garriott a few weeks ago and sure, he sure, was, yeah. it, that's kind of one of the interesting parts of it is because games are still such a young medium. He kind of, he just followed his interests and at sort of age 19 was just there at the sort of crest of the wave and then kind of rode that to huge success, but yeah, not, not, not was... thinking that it was going to be this huge thing necessarily. Oh sure, you know I I, um, I have a long history of of obsession with the Atari VCS, the Atari twenty six hundred from the late nineteen seventies, and uh, one of the one of the stories that uh, that's interesting to tell about that era uh, is the you know the way that people got into uh, the, the business. You know, uh, like David Crane, who who designed Pitfall and others, um, was trained as an electrical engineer, but then when they were bringing new folks into uh, Atari and then later later into Activision. You know, they, they were just their friends, um, like Steve Cartwright, uh, who made Barnstorming and Frostbite and other games for Activision, was uh, like a competitive uh, foosball uh, uh, player with, with Crane. They, they played in these foosball leagues, which is a whole other story, I guess. Um, and it's like, yeah, maybe you want to make, come and make these, these video games um, with us. And, and that's, how that, that's how that happened. Uh, so the, the randomness of it, and also the way that, that in those days, um, and, and much later on, really, I mean, it wasn't just limited to those early days. Yeah. You know, people had different backgrounds, and, you know, they came out of whatever it was that they were doing, whether it was, you know, the, the fine arts, or whether it was business, or whether it was uh, software and, 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 and computing. And so they were pulling in to, to, to games and game design. They were pulling in um, all of those interests and all of that background. And uh, people think that I'm a snob for for saying this, but I, I think maybe we were better off then, when uh, game design and and in the experience of games was more informed by this this sort of broader uh, worldview, this broader sets of, of of ideas and 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 influences and yeah. you know that fields that connected with the world uh, more more broadly. And that's one thing that uh, you know it's not that it's disappeared. I don't want to be you know too too uh, uh, derogatory, uh, but but rather that you you can focus now from the very start of your career or, or your, your life. Yeah. I mean, it was inevitable then, though, because, you know, there, there wasn't a history of games to draw from necessarily, or certainly not video games, you know. So just it, you would have to bring in external things into the way you wanted to play or what you wanted to play. 
Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Will Wright, who I guess we don't talk about much anymore. It's like Will has vanished uh, from the from the planet. I wonder if if many of today's sort of young people who are really into games on Steam or, or on uh, you know IO games or on their iPads or whatever even even know who Will Wright is. But um, you know, playing SimCity as a as a kid and then and then other games and then listening and getting getting to know Will professionally later on. Um, you know, this this sort of strong sense of like he had these these interests and would go and seek out, you know, research material, um, you know, and bring in Christopher Alexander or, or, uh, or Eo Wilson or, or, um, um, uh, you know, bringing in, um, Gaia theory into Sim Earth and like, you know, that, that idea, which became very influential, uh, to me as a, as a designer working on these, these games about politics and so forth, which is, you know, all about games as a medium in which ideas could, um, could endure and be translated. Um, and that sort of thing, um, you know, is is something that you find, I think, in many other media. I, I spend a lot of time with writers, with journalists, and, you know, we're constantly sort of looking out in the world and drawing those those ideas in, processing them, synthesizing them, and then attempting to push them uh, back out again. And while, you know, by no means do I think that that's the only kind of games uh, that should exist or that they are more virtuous or more righteous than than others – uh, it is a it is an aspect uh, of the medium that has you know somewhat been on on the on the wane maybe and then you and then you inter you intersect that sort of that sort of idea with just the way that that, that nerd culture pop culture comics games you know and, and everything else with, with in culture today has sort of blown up and become much more much more viable and much more central um, and now you can get away with not not doing that that importing you know of yeah. uh, of outside influences. Because it's almost like you know, like Ready Player One is like the the, the Uber example of it recently of like there is a there is now a canon of kind of um, alternative mediums, I suppose, like things that as a kid was like I would bond with a few select people over. Like it's now become kind of yeah, as I say, like canonized, and you know, right, you, you need right. to know these specific things. This is the journey of the, the yeah, culture of yeah. the moment, you know. Well, and they've become, they've replaced high, high culture, you know, Absolutely, there was a time yeah. in, in, you know, in, in, in 20th century modernism when, you know, uh, high modernism was all about importing and transforming these references to, uh, to the Renaissance, to, to, to classics, uh, and, and, and antiquity. And now we have sort of the same thing happening, but with, uh, yeah, with, with nerd culture and, and pop culture of yeah. previous eras, you know, and as a kid in the 1980s, um, it didn't feel that aspiration didn't. And of course, I'm 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 pretending as though I remember this clearly. But my recollection is that, you know, watching Back to the Future or watching Indiana Jones or Star Wars or whatever it was, uh, the aspiration wasn't oh would that this become the center of my cultural <laughs> life forever. Uh, we we of course weren't thinking about it as as kids in that way. But but you know the the idea that you're you know whatever you enjoyed as a as a youth would. Uh, had a right to persist in the same way and really in the same way, you know, and you see yeah. these controversies about like star Wars, this, you know, it doesn't aspire to, to the right kind of canonicity of the characters and whatnot. It, it, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, uh, perversion. I don't think perversion is, is too, uh, strong, a, a word for it, but, but there's softer versions of it too. You know, I, I wrote this piece of a, a number of years ago, which is also in one of my books on, um, Gone Home, this you know indie game, uh, Gone Home, uh, really lovely game. You know this very sort of personal uh, story of this, uh, this 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 young woman character who's sort of coming coming of age and this sort of you know discovering her sexuality. And it's it's you know made by these these folks, charming, wonderful people whom I love, uh, who worked on uh, uh, the Bioshock, second Bioshock, and you know have the same kind of. Um, uh, you know, exploratory, uh, narrative, yeah, um, yeah. uh, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. So, so, um, you know, and, 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 uh, when this game came out a number of years back, it was, it was highly lauded and people loved it. And I thought it was, you know, it was charming and, and delightful on the one hand, but then on the other hand, and this is what I wrote in this piece, you know, it's sort of like, it, it's basically like young adult fiction, um, in its themes and aspirations. And, on the one hand, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we have to. It's worth admitting that. Well, if that is the the aspiration of uh, of games as an adult medium, um, then okay. But let's let's be honest about it and kind of and kind of face those those facts. And you know, the the flip side of that position uh, of my own position is that actually it's not so much that the aspirations of uh, of games uh, have have been lowered, the bar has been lowered, but of media in in general. 
uh, have you. Yeah. And now, now the comic book movies are sort of the you know these big cultural uh, events, and we we look at them as um, opportunities for changing the way that people are represented in film. You know, we have Wonder Woman, we have Black Panther, and though that's that's fantastic and and wonderful, and certainly that kind of exposure at that scale with that amount of money behind it, all of those things are uh, are, are important and and. Uh, and worthwhile, but at the same time, it's comic books, you know. Yeah. And is that what we thought we were getting into when we, uh, <laughs> when we first started working with these, uh, you know, with these these sort of, you know, with 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 what amounted to to children's media at a time. And it, like I do find myself now, especially like as someone who was kind of steeped in this as a kid and and ridiculed for it as a kid, that yeah. it's almost now. Um, like I almost feel guilty to my kind of you know fourteen year old self that I'm now kind of starting to get a bit bored of them all. It's like like explaining to my kind of teenage self that you know there would be series uh, like t- full TV expensive series about the Punisher and Daredevil, and I just never really got round to watching them because you know I kind of get what will happen. Uh, I, f- I feel yeah. somewhat guilty yeah. to my younger self that it's just it's gone too far. If you know what I mean. Well, right, and, and that, you know, there were signs of this even <clears throat> even back in the day. You know, the, the, this I'm not the first one to make this observation, but the the kind of revenge of the nerds fantasy, <clears throat> both in the in the film uh, of that name and then more abstractly, uh, was not about sort of you know moving uh, geek culture, pop culture, whatever you want to call it, um, into a position where it was equal to you know so-called jock culture, which was meant to be a sort of a proxy for. Uh, for mass mass culture, yeah. uh, you know, kind of brawn and 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 so forth. More, more generally, it was about unseating them uh, by their same tricks. It was about be- becoming the bullies, uh, and that's very much uh, happened uh, in, in large part. Uh, and that's the sort of the the general mode of behavior uh, online is that uh, now everyone has the, the the right to their opinion about their uh, you know their favorite unimportant uh, uh, cultural reference, and then they can. They can impinge upon whoever has a, a kind of countervening <laughs> a position, or this, you know, sort of you know, Reddit, 4chan culture is this this kind of overturning of the tables, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and uh, you know, it, it should have been obvious that that was on uh, that that was the future that uh, that was being fantasized, uh, at, you know, 30 years ago and and, and longer. Uh, but it's only become clear recently that 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 was. That that was the case, and really only in like the last year that I think, broadly speaking, uh, we've been uh, recognizing and beginning to grapple with that culturally. Absolutely. Um, well, let's uh, let, let's trace your journey back then, Ian. So, um, if you can remember, what was your your first experience of a video game? Wow. Um, <clears throat> You know, so I'm going to preface my answer by saying that in in relation to some of the stuff we've been talking about, I don't think I was thinking about video games as this thing that I was aspiring to interact with or intersect with in, in my life. They were there, and I encountered them, and they were there like all sorts of other things. Uh, so I do remember, you know, I remember early coin-up arcade games, and I remember playing early... Um, Early games on uh, on microcomputers on, on on personal computers. Um, the first game I have a very strong memory of having a, a playerly relationship uh, with. Um, it might have been Donkey Kong. It might have been Pac Man. It was that era of uh, okay uh, of coin ops. Um, and then uh, and then at a similar you know in a similar moment um, playing games we we had we were lucky to have. Uh, some computers uh, in in school at the time, uh, mostly these TI 99s, which were bizarre and and, and unlovely. And, and I never had a computer or or a game system for many years, but uh, uh, many of my friends did. I had Ataris and televisions, and then um, um, and so on. Uh, so th- there was a kind of mystery and a um, exoticism uh, to games. You know, going into the arcade. Or, or, you know, even not the arcade. I mean, it's important to remember that at this time, the, the during the coin-up era, you know, games were still a, a kind of, uh, you know, cesspool. There was sort of the cesspool culture, right? Like you weren't absolutely. You know, the the arcade was a was a was a an eventuality that arose out of the um, the bar and the and the bowling alley and you know these other adult venues that had uh, coin-operated entertainment or or parlor-style entertainment, pinball and darts yeah. and so forth. Uh, and I played a lot of these games then and, and in subsequent years in those kind of spaces where maybe I shouldn't have been, 
uh, in, in some ways. I often uh, think so about you, how bad that was when I was like, I would play arcade games in like taxi ranks and kebab shops and stuff, yeah, just wherever yeah. there would be stuff. Yeah. And in my head, they were magical places because I could go and play whatever like street fighter or something but in reality like the image of you know myself as like a nine-year-old kid in the corner of a sort of dingy taxi rank is yeah, kind of yeah, exactly. uh, kind of gross but also kind of beautiful because i was clearly oh, yeah. in another world yeah yeah and i think that encounter with games as this this kind of um you know underbelly of of, of polite society uh was an important influence on on everyone who was alive and <clears throat> playing them at the at that time um and, you know, I remember being very bad at, at all of these games, being terrible at Donkey Kong and at, and at Pac-Man uh, and, 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 and similar games, but, but going back to them and sort of being, you know, deeply intrigued and distressed at the exactly what it was that was going on. Uh, you know, one of the things that's happened in the last 10 years, I guess, since the, the social gaming craze is that... Um, people have come to terms a little bit with the relationship between games and gaming between gambling and, and, and computer and video games. Yeah. Uh, and of course that, that relationship has always existed, but it was denied for a long time. And with these coin up games, they were all about maximizing coin drop uh, as they call it in the business and getting you to, to put in another quarter, um, as quickly as possible kick you off in, in two or three minutes so that someone else, um, could drop in another coin. Uh, and I remember feeling that I didn't know what it was called. I didn't understand the dynamics that were at work, you know, but here was this, this apparatus that uh, I put a coin in and that was, um, uh, really didn't want me to be engaging with it. You know, it, it, <laughs> its purpose was, was to eject me from the experience. Um, and, uh, and, and I nevertheless enjoyed and delighted in that, you know, partly because of the, the sounds and the. The, the delight of the sounds, but but also because it seemed uh, it seemed like I had opened some rift in 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 the universe, and I was looking, it was sort of peering into this this hellscape of a of, a, of an alternative world. Um, the the other thing that was that was the case at this time that is almost impossible to remember anymore is that information was very inaccessible. Uh, we didn't have the internet, but we also didn't even have any kind of proxy for that sort of cataloging of of culture. Um, so I, I can't remember at what point it was that, uh, whether it was like Pac-Man plus or one of these versions of Pac-Man appeared that had, uh, swapped out the, the, the fruit, um, of the bonus fruit for like, uh, you know, it was a Coke can or a hamburger or something like that. Uh, like today I could look up exactly which variants uh, it is. And I, and I've stopped storing that information in my brain because it's so easy to access. But at the time there in the arcade, you know, discovering this 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 sort of strange interloper version of Pac-Man with a with a Coke can in it. Um, yeah, that that felt like an amazing discovery. Of course, it had nothing to do with playing the game. I didn't even have to drop a coin into it. Uh, I could just sort of sort of stare at it um, from afar in it in its attract loop. Uh, that was an important uh, a part of that. That that's a memory I have of that sort of that sort of firstness. Essentially, one of being. It's really not about the game so much the specific titles as as it was a feeling of being. Uh, somewhere I wasn't supposed to be, uh, somewhere that was quite uh, dingy and, and somewhat somewhat um, inappropriate, and where inappropriate things were happening, you know, um, <laughs> and and that wanted to eject me uh, uh, from them. And you know, the other thing that that uh, arcade culture had that uh, I guess I guess has been reproduced to some extent in uh, in online games uh, in, in its own way is that uh, you know older older kids or adults in these spaces, especially in the arcade rather than the bowling alley or whatnot, um, were quite you know they were quite aggressive. Uh, and if you know you were kind of in the way or you know they were playing, you were on their machine. Uh, there was this sort of weird power struggle. Um, so there was a social dynamic to the to the experience Absolutely. of gaming that I always I, I have a strong association with. Or then later when I, you know, when I would play Atari or in television uh, at friends' houses um, uh, or on computers on the Commodore or on the, on the Apple or, you know, then later in school and so forth, um, you know, I was going to visit this, this strange device that was very costly at the time still. And, you know, that uh, uh, the, the, the software for which was almost as if it had been plucked out of the air. I, I remember playing uh, this fantastic uh uh, in television game uh, called Utopia, which is this this sort of uh, simulation early simulation game, um, 
and I think it was made by Don Daglow, uh, actually, who I later met. One of the things that we, we, we can come back to a little bit what's remarkable about games is that all these people and ideas that I encountered, um, then later I, you know, met with and now know, and in many cases I'm friends with uh, the creators of these things, which is very, very different from from other media, I think. Yeah. Um, but here was this, you know, this sort of just bizarre, uh, uh, you know, it was a little bit like civilization. That's the simplest way I can get the idea across. Um, this sort of two players and each player had an island and you had to manage the resources and you could create these, um, you know, these sort of patrol boats and, and other sorts of you know, farms and, and, and so forth. And yeah. it was completely preposterous and bizarre. And, and I would, didn't, I didn't, uh, it didn't strike me in, I, I, it didn't strike me in that way at all. Or, or, or I remember, I can't remember what it was called, but there was a, a Commodore 64 game, same friend, same friend of mine who is his, uh, parents were engineers and. They got all the latest gizmos. Um, had some uh, Commodore game in which there was this extensive. Uh, it was like an F one game, like a racing game. Okay. But it was mostly mostly this sort of pit pit stop simulator. There was this very extensive pit crew uh, aspect to the game, and uh, you know, quite innovative idea. Uh, you know, I think if you if you kind of fast forward a couple of decades and you imagine adding that back into racing games, it would seem uh, like an interesting innovation that would get good write ups. Uh, but at the time, it was it was entirely uh, just seemed entirely reasonable. Sure, like that's a part of the experience. Yeah. Uh, so this became important for me later on as a designer when I when I thought about like the idea of well, almost anything can be represent any any kind of system any any mode of behavior can be represented in games and why is it that we have such a low diversity of those uh, of those subjects that that find their way into commercial games, especially in the '90s and onward. Well, how did you how did you make this shift then? Because because you know, the, I've, I've never heard it actually kind of articulate quite that way that the way the kind of arcade culture is kind of now there is that still exists now online in a different way. That, that that's really interesting. Like, but also how you were viewing them as you know portals into another world. Like, at what age or at what point in your life did you start to kind of see behind the curtain a little more, which is clearly something you've become very interested in. Like, was that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, w- one thing, and some of this, uh, you know, I don't, I, I've talked with in my, in my research and, 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 uh, and writing, uh, and just as a, as an interested, um, you know, a, a kind of party to the, to the, to this, this subject, I've talked with a lot of old timers, uh, in, in the industry and, 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 you know, there's a lot of hero worship and I understand that. And one of the things I always wonder when I'm talking to people who are around uh, making games in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it's like, how, how much do you really remember of what happened to you decades ago, uh, no matter how accurately you appear to present it in, in your speech or in your writing? So I'm always very suspicious of my own sense of, of my memory, especially uh, my, my feelings at the time as I reconstruct them in the present. But, w- but one thing I'm quite certain of as I synthesized that experience uh, of, of the 1980s in particular was that uh, for those of us who were uh, uh, you know alive and and, and, uh, and uh, you know old enough to, to be able to manipulate these systems as players um, and and as users of, of computers and who had the uh, the good fortune to be um, uh, in a position to to use them whether you know having a PC at home or at school which is was still very rare uh, at, at the time, uh, there was this opportunity to kind of co-evolve with the 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 microcomputer, like you know the 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 Apple II, um, which was first released in in 1977, and the the Commodore PET and and, and 64, the CI99, which I mentioned, the uh, the various uh, uh, Tandys, and then the the IBM compatibles, um, uh, the Mac in 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 84. Uh, the, these machines were. They were they were new uh, at, at that moment, and they were evolving technologically in the same way that any technology evolves. Uh, but but having the opportunity to be around at that time uh, meant that um, uh, those of us in those in those positions could kind of co-evolve with them, uh, and that that involved just you know a, a combination of using them and understanding how they work. But you know you'd boot up one of these machines at the time, a personal computer, and it was just a blinking cursor, and the first thing you could immediately start to do was to program it, usually. Yeah. In, in basic or, or then later in, in assembly, uh, we did uh, logo uh, on the, on the TIs at, uh, at school, which I only even realized was logo many years later when I started looking into the, the history of computing and learned about Seymour paper and Alan Kay and all the rest. Uh, and so that was the strong sensation I had of, of kind of games and their relationship to my, my future work was not so much that I was intrigued by and sort of committed to, 
playing, critiquing, developing games, but that games were one of these places early, from a very early early start where uh, computing and culture were intersecting and, and collaborating. And, and that's that's really the important connection. You know, I, I have these colleagues um, in uh, uh, in in my world as designers and as and as as critics and historians and whatnot. And sometimes people, you know, I hear them talk, right? Listen to them on podcasts, and and they they say things like, "Oh, I always knew that I wanted to make games," you know, from an early age. And I, I've always been so alienated by that idea because I I never felt that way at all uh, that I wanted to make games or anything. I was interested in in arts and, and, and literature and, and later philosophy. And I was interested in computers and I never had a sense, um, as a kid or, or, or then as a teenager, uh, that, that there was a synthesis of those worlds. They seemed like, um, uh, totally at odds with one another. Even when I went off to school, I, I was content or maybe not content, but I was resigned to the idea that I would have to choose, uh, between them. Uh, and that turns out not to have been the case for better and for worse, uh, broadly speaking. <laughs> Um, but that was the, that's the sort of way I would describe that, 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 that change and that turn, um, that, that games, games are the, you know, they, they've always been at the, the technological bleeding edge of computing, of course, but they've also always been the place where computing, um, interacted with, with cultural production beyond mere tools, you know, software like, uh, spreadsheets or, or accounting programs or word processors. And I think that was what. I think that was the nascent idea that was being cultured in me in in those uh, in those early days. And so, is is that how you kind of kind of forged your path? Is that you know you had an interest in kind of culture and history, but also computers? And then, like, was there a? I mean, maybe this is asking you to be two paths, but was there a specific moment or a game where you you noticed this kind of convergence that kind of set you on the path that you you went on to follow? Yeah, and a lot of this is a lot of these these moments of realization for me, and I think for anyone who's honest with themselves, are 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 retrospective. You Absolutely, look back yeah. and you realize, yeah. oh, but I do have a couple of them. And you know, I remember I mentioned Will Wright and, and SimCity. I, I remember playing uh, SimCity in in a software shop in, in the in the mall in 1989 when the game was was first released. Uh, and I'm going to indulge a little bit in in some context here because I think it's important. Uh, back in that at that time, at least in the states the 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 way that you bought software and games was very different you you didn't go to the you go to like the toy shop like toys r us for yeah. uh, for console games uh, but computer games uh, were a little bit different and um, the 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 company we now know as as gamestop is the uh, the subject of uh, a number of uh, of acquisitions and consolidations over the years but if you zoom back long enough you get to this shop that was called software etc and there were others. There was Babbage's. There were there were others, and these are these are definitely American references. Yeah. Um, but uh, software, etc., was spawned out of this this uh, mall bookshop uh, called B. Dalton. Uh, and so back in, in in those days, in the you know early mid nineteen uh, eighties, when when people were starting to buy software, uh, there was literally this part of the bookshop, the mall bookshop, where they had computers set up where you could buy software. It's just interesting to reflect on that idea of software and games being presented alongside books uh, as a, a commensurate kind of media. And, it's very similar in the UK, actually, because yeah, yeah. W. H. Smiths is like the the kind of it's still a very popular kind of high street store, which primarily sells books i mean mainly it sells stationery and things like that but back in the 80s certainly like that was where you would go to buy your spectrum games and your commodore games though that was just where they were yeah and i think that's important because even if we didn't realize of course i wasn't thinking about it at the time i just walked into the shop and i'd look at some you know some some comic book collections or i'd look at some books and i'd look at some games it was all a part of the same kind of behavior the same kind like there were ideas in these media and there were those ideas in books. There were those ideas in comics. There were those ideas in games, and they were presented in that fashion. They weren't uh, uh, firewalled uh, from yeah. one another. Uh, so that context was important because when I fell upon uh, a SimCity, which was this bizarre game about uh, you know uh, urban planning, sort of about urban planning, um, it it felt both uh, completely reasonable and and like a total uh, revelation. Um, and so I was, as I would, and I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a computer at home capable of, of playing that software. So I, I just spent time with it on the demo machines. Um, I remember this, you know, very vividly, this sort of bodily memory of exactly where I was uh, playing that game. And, and, and that was a clue, uh, even that early that, well, you know, th- there's a sort of non-fictional aspect to, uh, 
to computer games. Isn't that interesting? And again, of course, you know, that was not necessarily the idea of running <laughs> my head, but, but it stuck with me. And then later on, uh, when, uh, so that was a moment, you know, and then Civilization was, you know, similar moment around the same time, Simmer, th- those sorts of games uh, became very influential to me. Like this idea that you would take something from the world and depict it in a simplified way in the game uh, as an entertainment experience, but also as a way of, of shedding light on, on that on that experience yeah. uh, in, in the world. Um, so that was a very important uh, a moment. And, and then later on in the mid-90s when I was first working in uh, uh, in the kind of dot-com era, which at that time was still very much bound to the, uh, the so-called interactive era, the CD-ROM uh, era, and... Uh, and websites were, you know, seen as a kind of extension of of, uh, of that sort of multimedia publishing. Uh, there was I, so I worked on on the first uh, the first uh, iteration of uh, Lexus.com, the automotive uh, uh, website, and uh, this was like the mid '90s. And we had this, you know, it was Lexus, so it was you know like rich people who buy luxury cars, and we had this game. You know, must have been some kind of Shockwave or Java game. Uh, it was a golfing game, just like you know, links or whatever your favorite standard golfing game was, and you know, and they were they, they presented it on the on the Lexus website as a kind of lifestyle extension of the the sort of you know consumer who would be interested in uh, buying a car like that would maybe also be interested in golfing. A totally reasonable idea. And it's, uh, this is just like built into the website, like just built a, into the website. Okay. Yeah, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even very heavily branded or anything as a kind of advert game. Although I got into that later, but you know, I remember realizing then that oh, okay, there's a that's interesting. Like the sort of notion that a game could have this um, uh, uh, this sort of affinity marketing connection to yeah. uh, a product or service, and, and that's what led me down the road toward this idea of of, of persuasion or of um, uh, of rhetoric in games, of, of using games to make arguments. And you sort of take that idea of trying to get somebody to buy something, whether that's a product or an idea, and you couple that to the the lessons that I was learning from SimCity and Civilization that games were, were capable of. Of depicting and representing uh, uh, these systems in the world in a, in a simplified um, uh, uh, way, uh, and I think those are the those were the ingredients that really got me that got me rolling um, so uh, as what, a critic and as a designer. What was your kind of plan at that moment then? So, you, like, did you just like how did you end up? At, at I had no plan. Yeah, I mean, I had no, I had no. Well, I mean, you know, the, everything was utterly random at the time. Yeah, and, and you know, I went to. Uh, I went to undergraduate to, to university to, um, I thought I was going to study computer science and I ended up studying philosophy and comparative literature. I have a, my, my doctorate's in comparative literature, um, you know, very traditional kind of, you know, uh, history and, and theory of, uh, uh, of ideas and, 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 uh, and culture. And, uh, and so, the, like I said, those worlds were totally, totally separate from one another. So I was doing this. In fact, I remember saying to myself at the time, well, you know, the, so the dot-com era was erupting, and I had some skills that I'd developed, um, you know, from that connection to computing I was mentioning yeah. earlier. I learned to program and all that. Um, and, you know, when I made this decision, I thought, well, you know, I'm, 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 I'm never going to get a job as a philosopher, so I might as well, I might as well go ahead and study that <laughs> in school. Um, and I know I can work uh, in, uh, in the technology industry. I don't know what we were calling it then, whatever that was in that dot-com era. And I was working all the way, all the way through school doing that. Um, and to me, it was going to be, it was a choice I was going to have to make and kind of an indulgence to, um, to continue pursuing um, uh, philosophy and literature and, and, and art history and so forth. And, and then it turned out, of course, that I got a job as a philosopher uh, who also is a computer programmer. But that, that you know, it's just like a nice, a nice irony later on. So, so at, the mo- at that moment, there was no plan. It was just sort of me encountering these, these, these momentary uh, embraces of, of, of those two universes and kind of noting them that they were taking place. Yeah. And it wasn't until the early 2000s, um, you know, which is when I started my, my, my game company. It was also when I started doing uh, my writing, um, my critical and, and, uh, uh, and commercial writing on, 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 on games that, that I kind of finally put the, the, the whole thing together. Uh, and I, I think in a lot of ways, everything I've done since then with games has been, um, has had that same form, that form of, of, of a marriage of two things, you know? So, yeah. you know, my first book was about um, literary criticism in games. And, and then I wrote a book on rhetoric in games. And I did this work with, with journalism in games for many years, both in writing and in my uh, 
uh, at the studio and in my creative practice. It's all been a you know a series of connections between games and something else. Uh, and I think that also it harkens back to these ideas we started with of of this this importing of of, of external domains absolutely uh, and yeah. goals in, into games. So do you, do you think part of that is because of you know your 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 interest and your your study of kind of um, the history of ideas and literature and and philosophy that because you had also this side interest in games and and as we sort of mentioned right at the start of the show you know that was still at the time was an extraordinarily niche thing that there's part of you that's like, well, this is, nobody else is doing this. So like, maybe I could like, as a way to kind of, you know, set yourself apart, so to speak, and oh, yeah. explore no, no, new territory. Right. Yeah, totally. Like that has to be part of the draw, right? It was, but I mean, I, I wish I could claim that I had this sort of savvy strategic or tactical approach uh, to my life and career in which I was, you know, seeing those opportunities just over the horizon. And, and it was... Um, I'm not even sure that it was passion. I mean, it was something, but I, I feel so strongly about the the accident of of successes of, of any kind, modest or profound, and, and certainly of my own. That when I look back on it, the the the, the number of of accidents and sort of uh, moments of incredible uh, good timing uh, were innumerable. You know, the <clears throat> you know getting into into uh, computing early enough that I had. Uh, the skills at a time when there was a demand in the in the sort of dot com era that was one thing, and then you know picking this up again after the dot com crash and after nine eleven and the sort of ensuing um, uh, downturn, uh, and and you know kicking off this uh, this design project at both at Persuasive Games and then my uh, my my writing project in my in my books and and then later in my uh, critical writing. Uh, it was easy to say things that were new because nobody else was doing them and to make things that were new because either nobody else was doing them or everyone had forgotten about the last time that they had happened. You can go back uh, decades and find people doing exactly what I'm talking about, not yeah. just with City, you know, Chris Crawford in the 80s. And uh, just go, there's, you know, innumerable examples of exactly this kind of work, but we tend to, to forget about it, partly because our technology cycles out. And we can't play all these old games and then people burn out of the industry and all of that. Um, so, uh, so having the good fortune of kind of getting in uh, on the ground floor of some of those, uh, of some of those ideas was, uh, it was certainly important. And, and, you know, this was right at the time that, uh, uh, the so-called field of game studies, uh, in, in the academy was, was yeah. kicking off, um, you know, some people peg it to 1997, um, and some to sort of 2000. Uh, and so, you know, those of us who were, you know, uh, alive and coherent and, uh, uh, yeah, well placed and uh, had the right energy to get something done in those early days. You know, got the opportunity to to make some uh, to make some work and to and to write down some ideas that uh, that proved indispensable. Partly by, by virtue of the fact that maybe they were maybe they were decent ideas, and partly by virtue of the fact that they were um, uh, available, newly available. Uh, and and so you know, establishing canon is easier when uh, when there's less competition. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you were drawn into this, like. It appears to me that your kind of your your interest both in the kind of the the criticism and, and study of games was kind of parallel with your interest in creating and making games. Like, were they both kind of feeding back into one another? Yeah, was that, there any you were particularly focused on? That was very much the case, and and that was part of this dance between you know whether I was a theorist or whether I was a a, a creator, um, and my own dissatisfaction with with being one or the other in in my own life, and and still believing that they were these sort of two universes. Uh, you know, even when I was finishing my my dissertation, um, I had the sense that, well, you know, I, I would do that so I could call myself doctor, uh, you know, but not that <laughs> I do helps people. Uh, but then I would go back into industry, to, you know, because there's no other way to make a living. And it was only by happenstance that the, these positions in the academy opened up, which then allowed me to to experiment a lot more in the studio and in my own work and in my writing. Uh, so, you know, th th those ideas that I was talking about with like the, the, the Lexus example, and there were others that, you know, that appeared later. I was always playing out these sort of design philosophies uh, in practice at the same time as I was doing them uh, in theory. And, and you know, my 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 book on on games and politics and, and education and um, and all the all the rest, which is called Persuasive Games, has the the same title as the studio, and that's not an accident. You know, it was this, this yeah. sort of exercise. And well, I've got these this sort of design philosophy you know, about how you could make arguments uh, in in uh, w with gameplay. And then I also maybe I should try that out uh, and make some actual games and sort of see how it plays out. And, and, and you know, I, I, doing that since I'm interested, like 
because of that kind of the the confluence of of of, of influences, so to speak, like out of everyone I've spoken to, I think you're coming to game design from a, a relatively unique position because, like, presumably you weren't thinking 100% commercially. You're you're looking to and explore an idea that you're you're kind of decoding from uh, from your research and and then portray that as a game. So, like, was there an I guess, like, was there an element where you were just making games to explore an idea or was there part of you that was like, but I want to make a fun game that people will love and that I can sell yeah. lots of copies of? Right, right. Well, I wish, I certainly wish I had been thinking more commercially uh, <laughs> in those early days. And some interesting missed opportunities that I'll mention. Uh, the, the, so, you know, back in the day, I actually just, just wrote about this recently as it relates to this Mark Zuckerberg Facebook thing, as I was kind of comparing our moment to the dot-com era. Back in that day, those of us who kind of came out of that that 90s internet culture, um, it was excessive uh, in a lot of ways. And there were a bunch of people who got rich and then lost all their money. And there were parties and lots of air on chairs and all that. Yeah. Uh, but it was a very service-oriented moment in computing. It was like, you know, we were helping all of these uh, legacy organizations and companies and governments come online and make these services uh, available in the way that we've come to take for granted. And so that that sort of sensibility of, of service orientation, of helping uh, people and organizations solve problems uh, felt very natural uh, at the time. And um, and so, you know, the work that I started doing in, in, in politics and in learning and in, you know, kind of corporate work, a lot of it was this this sort of work for hire contract stuff, you know, where we, you know, we made games for ice cream parlors and for political candidates and uh, and for car companies and uh, and for uh, these educational initiatives in informal contexts. And um, and so it was profitable and all that. I mean, it was always a business uh, at the studio, but it certainly wasn't mega profitable. Yeah. And um and so, you know, looking back on it now, you know, I see the moments where we found these these design patterns that later became really profitable as they mainstreamed and also as they were exploited. Um, you know, when we, we did this game, uh, Gonzalo Fresca and I designed this game back in 2003 the, uh, for the Howard Dean campaign for president. It was the first time there had been an American presidential candidate with a with a video game. And we had this, this very, this was like in 2003, we had this very early social gaming mechanic in that game where you could use like AOL instant messenger and email to, to send out these invitations from the game and bring people in that then became these like constituents in the, in the experience. And that sounds very boring and ordinary now, but that was like crazy ahead of its time at the moment. And uh, there were other games. I did this, this bad game for a, a, a Jet Li movie tie in uh, for Sony pictures that, that had this asynchronous uh, multiplayer aspect to it. It was on the, Palm Pilot, which is like just shows you kind of what era we're working in, um, you know, where you sent sent out this invitation that somebody else could then play. It was sort of playing off the play by mail craze that had been around forever, and then you know had been evolved into play by email, and uh, and of course you know that was exactly the the dynamic that got exploited in in Facebook games and in social games for for good and for ill. So there there were definitely early early signs we had. We did this game at the studio, this kind of satirical game uh, about. Uh, airport security after, you know, the, the, the sort of post post 9-11 uh, 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 doldrums of, of yeah. the preposterousness of, Theater of, of, of air, airport kind security. Of yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the, this was a game that we we first did on the web as a kind of news game, as kind of editorial cartoon game, and then did a an early, very early uh, iPhone version of. And it had this location-based thing where, you know, where you could play in different airports and get these collectibles and sort of before Foursquare and all these other location-based uh, tools had come on, come onto the scene. So, you know, it, in some ways, if we'd persisted with some of those little design patterns that we found and just kept hammering on them until the market and the world were ready for them, um, they would have been uh, much more commercially uh, uh, viable and profitable. And uh, a lot of the reason why we we weren't doing that was uh, partly because the company was just completely organic. You know, we weren't we didn't seek outside funding. We weren't yeah. trying to trying to grow as fast as possible. And part of it was that we were still seeing the work we were doing in this sort of service orientation. We we're trying to solve problems in the world first, and not not sort of build, um, you know, this this uh, this commercial gaming uh, uh, extravaganza. But but yeah, you know, looking <laughs> looking back on it, uh, I think I think there's this moment, you know, in in you look at a lot of old timers who've been around for decades in the games industry, and you can always point to this moment where they're like, maybe I should start making 
some money at this. You know? <laughs> All the folks who went to, you know, Playdom and, and Zynga and, when, and whatever in the in the social gaming craze who'd previously been doing this kind of, you know, creative work, like Steve Moretzky or someone, you're kind of like, all right, man, I, I, I got to give you credit. Like, you, <laughs> you've done your time. Why don't you go ahead and try to cash out? Um, it's, 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 I feel like, that. I mean, part of that is, I don't know, I, I feel kind of slightly snobbish saying this, and I don't, I don't know if this is fair, but, I, like, I feel bad that it's the kind of, it's the... The, the mechanisms and the, the kind of the the social manipulation aspects that are the ones that have stuck around rather than the kind of the themes and ideas that you were playing around with. Yeah, you know? they, they were interesting. Those design patterns were really interesting. I mean, fundamentally, uh, asynchronous uh, multiplayer gaming was all about respecting people's time and yeah. acknowledging that, you know, maybe, you know, kind of play-by-mail chess or play-by-mail diplomacy. Uh, you know, these are games that, that require a commitment of time that most people don't have and they're not in the same place. And so how can we make that friction uh, uh, less painful? Uh, well, maybe you can take your turn and then I'll take my turn later. That was It's a brilliant idea. But of course, it's, yeah, it got, it got very quickly contorted into this attention economy uh, dynamic. And we almost don't even remember uh, what it was like when it was uh, when it was different. The, the one the one uh, pattern that persists that still feels like that is a game like Words with Friends. Yeah, uh, which, you know, which you can still play in, in that fashion with your with your grandmother uh, or with your kids in, in exactly the same the same fashion. Um, and of course, that is not what people are thinking about uh, as a you know kind of innovative long term success. They're they're always focused on. Uh, whatever the whatever the latest thing is, you know, it's Fortnite this week, and who knows what it'll be next week. And uh, why do you? Th- I mean, this is maybe too big of a question. Like, why do you think that hasn't persisted? Like, why aren't there more? I mean, maybe you can point to ones that I'm not aware of, but why do you think there aren't more political games or more games that explore these aspects of of our culture? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons. Um, one of them is that the so the the bets that I was making in you know games and and politics, for example, in the like the early two thousands, um, I was making at a time when online culture was still a little bit up in the air. We didn't quite know what was going to happen with it. And uh, in order for that kind of a game to mainstream more, to be not even the mainstream fully, but at least to become akin to, you know, other kinds of nonfiction publishing, uh, yeah. whether it's tel- televisual or whether it's, you know, books and magazines and so forth. Um, the, the, the way that the media ecosystem of, of computing and the Internet w- would have had to evolve w- was such that those things, would, the, the kind of new ways of depicting ideas in these complex systems that were playable, that would have to have become more and more and more important over time. But instead what happened, and very quickly, was that all of the old uh, and entrenched um, uh, media experiences of the 20th century just came back home to roost and and they've persisted so today you know when you think about what it means to do stuff on the internet with computers it it means creating or reading text or audio uh, or or video um and that's or or images you know that's kind yeah. of so it's you know it's it's textual visual or moving image or sound information that, that is disseminated in, in a new way. And yeah, we have these different ways of slicing and dicing. We've got podcasts, and we've got Twitter. Uh, and, you know, th- those are different ways of doing uh, uh, creation and consumption of those old forms, but there's still those old forms. So, uh, you know, first YouTube came online, or I guess, you know, if we had like Flickr and other services, yeah. and YouTube and social media. So essentially what happened is that th- this sort of evolution of, uh, you know, s- this sort of systems thinking driven exploration of complex systems through through games and simulations I just got suffocated away, uh, not so much because it was inviable or even because it was undesirable, but because the, the power of, uh, of 20th century media uh, was even more unstoppable when it was mated to this new global uh, uh, dissemination system that is, that is the Internet. Uh, so more than anything else, I think that's, I think that's what happened. Uh, but another factor is uh, one that I, I hinted at a, a few minutes ago, which is that We've been here before with with games. You know, we we've been we have been a balance of power in 1984, and then we have Sim Earth and whatever it was 91, 92, and uh, you know every generation has had these these examples, commercially successful examples of what I'll call nonfiction games. Yeah. You know, and uh, and then they fell away, you know, because of changes in the way that the games industry worked. Um, 
the big shift between the 80s and the 90s was the the Nintendo shift, the the, the reinvention of computer games and video games as children's media uh, rather than as a, a general medium for for people of all ages. And then the 90s gave us sort of, you know, rise of, of, of kind of, uh, you know, not, it's not just violence in games. It was more like a kind of entrenchment of games as boys culture. Absolutely. Um, and and then you know uh, young adult culture and then and then you know the 2000s had a number of different shifts among them this this sort of exploitation of people through social games, so uh, you know and 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 all the all the while, um, people who who play games um, stop you know they stop they get sick of this they like, I'm just done with this I, I can't I can't stand I used to play EverQuest you know but now I just can't stand all of the you know the people I've got to deal with or you know I used to play. Uh, these social games on Facebook, then it just became a nuisance. Or, you know, I used to play games on my computer, but uh, now I can't really get them or I have to go to Steam and it's this crazy interface that I don't understand. So, uh, so that, that has also been this sort of, this sort of ingrained forgetting that's, um, that's built into the, the evolution of, uh, of games as a technological medium or anything that's new means you have to throw away what came before. And that's generationalized the, the whole experience a little bit. So now when I have students, you know, who are 18, 19 years old, and they come in uh, to my class. They've never heard of or, or thought about any of this stuff. It's just never been exposed to it. Yeah. And I've got to teach it to them anew, and then they've got to kind of throw off all of their existing expectations. Uh, whereas all throughout their 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 lives, uh, you know, as as people and as students, they've been exposed to to books and to television and to films and to you know a, a, any kind of culture that has a persistence through time. Um, that is much harder to get at um, uh, with games. So th those are a couple of the important uh, factors. And, and you know, I mean, I think I've been much more honest than than most folks who work in this in this domain that I work in. This sort of like a lot people have different names for it, you know, um, about uh, what an underdog project it is. And you know, there have been all of these sort of aspirations of it's just around the corner, and finally the you know, sort of a medium of the 21st century is going to unlock itself and people are going to be, you know, thinking and arguing with, uh, with, with games. Uh, but I'm just not so, so sure. I think, I think maybe this niche is, is, is going to persist, uh, for a much, much longer time than anyone, anyone, uh, thinks it will. And in a lot of ways, it, you know, gamers and game, even game developers don't see it as a niche because they can surround themselves with, a an ecosystem of people online that feels very, very big. And it seems like everybody's talking about, uh, you know, what's, what's new. Uh, but then when you zoom out from that, it, it's actually quite small. And by comparison, yeah, to the, certainly compared to film and TV and things like that. Yeah. I mean, there was this moment I had, you know, as when I, years, years after I started writing for the Atlantic, you know, where I have this amazing audience of, of you know, millions of, 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 you know, smart nonfiction readers and, and I realized, well, when I write about games at this venue, you know, I get a, a, a tenth or less uh, of the audience uh, compared to when I write about, you know, even Star Trek, even Slippers. You know, I, I can reach so many more people. <laughs> and that really changed my perspective. Uh, oh, slippers on, are universal, though. You know, yeah, exactly. On. Well, this is this is what I mean. You know, yeah, games yeah, yeah. are not. And, uh, and, and so, you know, but I think that that is, a, that is an idea that I've had a very hard time getting my... Uh, my colleagues who work in games to recognize and understand they just don't believe me when I say <laughs> that you know well your audience is actually quite small it's like well, look at these millions of players, look at all this money raised yeah that's true uh, but but the actual cultural leverage uh, of the of the universe of games is is much smaller than you might think do you desire that like would, do you, is 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 there kind of a, a like do you want that future to come like i guess like are you still kind of as much as you are like a very pragmatic about the about it like do you are you optimistic about it do you kind of yearn for it and think it's still an exciting viable future yeah, I, I still think there's something to be gained from it i mean the the, the, the political social promise of this idea of uh, what i call persuasive games or what others have called different things was that well we have this medium that seems to be capable of of depicting complexity in a native way because games are all about manipulating complex systems on a moment to moment basis and those are the big problems that we face in the world are these kind of complex interconnected systems so you know i'm very tempted by that by that notion that, that there's a way that not just through games like oh we can make a game about global warming that's not just what i mean but that we could we could alter uh the way that we th that we think in some way and the way that we approach problems by becoming more comfortable and familiar um with them as uh these you know kind of multi-variable messy systems where you know you do one thing over here and that changes something over there and there's no perfect answer and in fact if there's anything you can learn from games it's that um you know there's never a 
there's never a silver bullet uh, to, to victory. You have to work at it and understand the dynamics of uh, absolutely uh, of differentiation. Like, even if it's just like, oh, which Overwatch character is balanced, you know, against this other one. So that dream still feels very promising, and and I certainly haven't lost uh, uh, the the. Uh, aspiration toward toward realizing it but uh the, the you also have to sort of ask well what would what would the world have to be like in order for that to be realized and we'd have we'd have to make up quite a bit of quite a bit of lost ground and i'm not quite sure how we do that it's it's not as if, some, if there's a kind of killer this is not a killer app problem if only we had you know the the, the right game the right product uh, then everyone's eyes would open. It, it's about changing our habits and behaviors at a, at a scale that's enormous now, uh, because we've got billions of people who who spend uh, uh, enormous uh, uh, swaths of their days uh, uh, poking at uh, the you know the, the poking their lizard brains at, at the smallest uh, unit of uh, of information, and um, I don't know how we get beyond that. You know, m- maybe it will collapse. Uh, one of the things that's encouraging about this this recent uh, kind of turn against the tech industry, not just Facebook, but this sort of broad sense that, oh, wow, maybe, maybe this stuff is bad for us, uh, has been that it's opened the door toward some alternate uh, uh, future. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, where we see a lot of investment in, uh, in in novelty arising is in, you know, automation through machine learning and other other forms of artificial intelligence yeah. that are promising to give us to give us these answers offline. And we can just kind of get on with with our lives and let the let the systems dictate to us what the answers are to the complex problems, which is exactly the opposite of what I had in <laughs> mind. That we were going to engage there. So I, I'm, I'm still. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I have a, a kind of measured realism uh, that's that's not without. Uh, without hope, but I've, I've also never been, I've never been and remain, um, uncommitted to games as the answer. It was more like at the time that I started working with them, games presented the best possible, uh, uh, direction into solving some of those problems in a particular way. And so what happens in the future, it might not look like the thing that we broadly refer to as, as games today, and of course, that's that's not surprising. I mean, the thing that we call video games today is different than what we called them ten years ago and twenty years ago. Yeah. So that 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 evolution hopefully will 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 be uh, a co-evolution with all of the other dynamics that are taking place in the world. And and that just gets me back to this sort of you know broader theme of of uh, avoiding um, this isolationism with games, avoiding uh, thinking of them as this universe unto themselves that, that can that can sate and satisfy us uh, alone um do you do you feel that part of that is solvable let's say with the the ubiquitousness of of tools and game creation though in that you know the generations that are following us like you know we're talk, i'm talking like 10 10 year olds and, and upwards like there is a certain kind of um technical savvy that is just so beyond people that have kind of come before the generations above them that at some point communication through like little games they might have made for each other becomes as ubiquitous as sending a funny picture or yeah. you know, sending an email or something yeah it's it's really encouraging uh but it's also a little more complicated than it seems so the reason why we became uh, games became very complicated to make because computers became uh, very complicated, yeah. and also people's expectations uh, became uh, raised uh, as as the systems became more powerful, and as uh, as a certain kind of visual realism uh, set set the sort of stage for uh, for the future of games as uh, accurately depicting at least the the visual world. Um, but you know, if you kind of go back to the that, that time I was reminiscing about in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, 10 year olds had the capacity then to make these little these little games absolutely uh, natively on on those machines. And and they did to some extent, maybe not, you know, exactly in the same form, because the the, the, the ideas that would occur to you to make a game about were, were different. But that capacity existed then, too. And it was different on a you know machine to machine basis. Dissemination was harder. You certainly couldn't really make money at it unless you, you put them in a baggie and sell them at the, the local shop. And some people did that. And some of them became uh, famous game designers years later. So so we've always had that capacity uh, to some extent, and then we lost it, and now we're kind of gaining it back. But as we're gaining it back, many of the tools that have become available um, 
they assume a certain style of uh, of game. You know, you, you, yeah, you crack absolutely. open Unity and you're going to make a Unity game. And that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And while we have started to see a profusion of these sort of alternative tools that, that provide um, uh, access to different styles of um, uh, uh, of game design, uh, and, you know, some of that is a, a tool like Twine, which has sort of reinvigorated the the, the old hypertext model of, uh, of, of, of textual gameplay. Uh, and th- there are many, many others like this, you know, um, that is sort of where I see that, that opportunity in a, a diversity of, uh, of tools that, that allow for a diversity of, uh, of, uh, of works, diversity of forms of works, uh, not just yet another 3d game where you wander around in physical space and through collision detection and movements, uh, accomplish goals. Uh, but other other forms, are either historical that are coming back, or or are new ones that haven't been been conceived of. And one of the worries I have about this this amazing new profusion uh, of these kind of tools is that so many of them are seen as this um, this counterpoint, this sort of middle finger to the commercial mainstream, supposedly mainstream game sector. That they also uh, they also relinquish their opportunity. Uh, to commercialize themselves in a way that might make them viable for creators uh, to use as expression. Uh, you know, I use this uh, I use this software called Pico Eight in uh, in some of my game design classes, and it's this is simple, they call it a fantasy console. It's sort of like this eight bit like uh, you know simple uh, sprite based uh, tile based uh, game development tool. Okay. And it's it's really lovely, and you know, and 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 the the the, the folks who make it, I think it's just one person. Um, you know, they sell a license for the for the product itself, and it's like ten bucks or fifteen bucks, and that's nice. Uh, but then the whole ecosystem of the games is all about giving them away, which is lovely and wonderful. The same is kind of true of Twine and many of these others. Yeah. There's this sort of idea that these new voices need to be free, uh, but that's not really viable when it comes to uh, you know making a living as a creator, or even making a side living as a creator. So one of the things I'd like to see a lot more of is a kind of a recognition that there's uh, there's not. There's not a shame in, in commercialization and that also there the, the more viable paths for uh, part time or full time, um, uh, uh, you know, viable creative practice that we can create, uh, the better off we'll be. Well, uh, I, I could honestly talk for hours, Ian, but uh, I'm aware that you, you, your time is precious for the moment. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to close up. Was that was that OK for you? Yeah, that's that's great for me. Cool. And, and if you want like people to find you online or, or find your books, like where was the best place for them to discover these? Oh, yeah. So um, you can go to my website, which is bogost.com. That's B-O-G-O-S-T dot com. And I'm on Twitter as iBogost. And from there, you can get to all my articles and books and games and the rest. Cool. Um, honestly, what a thrill. That was really, really thoroughly enjoyable. There are oh, yeah, whole so chunks of the show that I didn't get to, but I was just far too engaged in the conversation, so that's absolutely fine. Um, yeah, that's it. Thanks. Awesome. Great. Yeah, so fun. Uh-